Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ultimately, the Divine Comedy is a story of theosis, of divinization, to use the orthodox words. Dante discovers the divine within him, which was there all along, but had got occluded. And he realizes that there's only one life, and that's the divine life. And his life participates and springs from that one life. Life. The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path, or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome back scholar, writer, and psychotherapist Mark Vernon to talk about his latest book, Dante's Divine Comedy, A Guide for the Spiritual Journey. As Mark says in his introduction, Dante begins his journey by waking up in a dark wood. The air tastes bitter. He becomes fearful. Truth is out of reach, but his crisis is a turning point. Many today, too, are waking up to something that's gone wrong. We're in a spiritual crisis. We must see the world afresh and understand. I believe Dante can help us discover how. And esteemed psychoanalyst Carl Jung wrote in his famed Red Book, a point exists at about the 35th year when things begin to change. It is the first moment of the shadow side of life, of going down to death. It's clear that Dante found this point. And when this turning point comes, people meet it in several ways. Some turn away from it, others plunge into it, and something important happens to yet others from the outside. For if we do not see a thing, fate does it to us. So basically, we get our midlife crisis whether we're looking for it or not. And just as Dante needed Virgil to guide him through his descent into hell, 
Dante serves as a guide to those of us on a spiritual journey. And his guide allows us to face our descent into the shadow with a little more wisdom and courage, perhaps, and struggle toward the light of expanded consciousness, the paradise at the end of the road. Dante's epic poem itself can be a little daunting for the modern reader, so having a guide who has both a deep understanding of Western spiritual and literary traditions, combined with experience as a psychotherapist, can be helpful, and Mark Vernon is well suited to the task. So in our conversation today, Mark gives us a great overview of the structure and themes of the Divine Comedy and provides some context that I felt makes Dante relevant and relatable, even to someone reading him 700 years after his death. So please, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Mark Vernon on The Medicine Path. Well, it's my great pleasure to have Mark Vernon back on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Mark. I know it's a bit late where you are, but uh, hopefully the energy will kick in once we uh, get the conversation going. Yeah, look, thanks for inviting me back. I enjoyed talking before, so I hope we will be able to say some inspirational things now. Yeah, well, I thought of you uh, because as we talked about in the previous podcast that was on really the roots of Christianity and, and the book that you wrote on Christianity. Um, I've been circling back to kind of discover the roots of Western culture fairly recently after, you know, 40 years of exploring other cultures and finally coming home to the roots of my own culture. And uh, a book that keeps coming up or a text that keeps coming up is Dante's Divine Comedy. It's a uh, been such an inspiration for writers and artists over the centuries, really, since it's been written. And uh, as you know, reading Dante as a modern reader it can be a very daunting endeavor. And so like Dante needed a guide through his journey, I think it's helpful to have a guide to take us through the journey uh, of this text. And uh, I couldn't think of anyone better than yourself to help us out with that. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I think to start with, I'd just really love to hear what inspired you to devote so much time and study to this text that's now over 700 years old? Well, I guess I always knew that it was a seminal Christian spiritual classic, you know, maybe even in the top three richest Christian texts alongside, say, Augustine's Confessions and um, maybe some Meister Eichhardt or the Cloud of Unknowing. It's in that kind of league and um, had wrestled from time to time to try to get into it, but hadn't managed. And then I was in a reading group with the Temenos Academy that operate here in London and Jeremy Nadler, one of their regular teachers, took us through the Divine Comedy Canto by Canto, which was crucial. But also at the time, I was at a point in my own psychoanalysis 
where I felt I was seeing more and more clearly that which haunted me, distressed me, um, but was beginning to wonder how I could find a way out of well, that descent, to use the Dante and metaphor. And so it hit me at the right time as well. And I recognized certain experiences that Dante has, particularly in the Inferno, that corresponded to my own experience in psychoanalysis. And then that gave me confidence to think, well, if he's right about the descent, then maybe he's got something to say about the ascent as well. And it, yeah, it, it really helped me to try and track what was happening for him and then not do the same, of course. It's not a mimetic text, but it, its dynamics, its qualities, I think actually not just inspire a sense of things in you, but actually evoke it too. Um, you know, he wrote not just to describe what, in some way it happens to him and then amplify and develop that in his life and times. He's quite explicit. He writes for readers into what he calls the modern period. He's the first person to use that word modern. And so even to us now, and when you do find a way in, that's the kind of spirit that is unleashed by the text. It is an inspired text. Um, so that's, it was, both um, where I was in my own journey, but also having a teacher in the form of Jeremy Nagler, a guide to help me as well. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Just for people listening, Jeremy Nagler is a very interesting guy. I was uh, introduced to him through uh, a documentary on Rudolf Steiner and I uh, just found his segments to be really compelling. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, he had the real gift to not just tell you what someone kind of thought, but also to know how to relate that so that it matters now. Um, and he's written a lot about the ancient world and how the modern consciousness has arisen. And so he's a brilliant person, I think, to bring these things to life. Hmm. Interesting. Is um, your book on Christianity kind of follows that the evolution of Western consciousness as well? Uh, you know, following in the footsteps of Barfield, who I think was a follower of Rudolf Steiner as well, wasn't he? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Barfield discovered his sense of how consciousness evolves himself through the study of words. He called words fossils of consciousness, so that if you study how words change meaning, you can see how people experience the world in very, very different ways over, over centuries, over the millennia. And when he became convinced of that himself, he found that Rudolf Steiner had said parallel things in terms of how human consciousness changes. Um, Steiner did it not just through his study. I mean, he was quite a, an exceptional German philosopher, actually, in the post-Kantian tradition, but also had these clairvoyant abilities um, that he seems to have developed more and more across the course of his life. And Barfield found in Steiner an affirmation, not only of his own sense of things, which Barfield then wrote about in his own voice, but someone who seemed to have gone a whole lot further besides. 
And so he became involved in writing about Steiner's work too. Hmm. Well, maybe much like um, this character of Dante Alighieri. Now, maybe uh, it'd be helpful for us to get a sense of the place and time in which uh, the Divine Comedy was written. Now, can you give us a little background on who Dante was and where he was at when he started to write this text, which I believe took about 10 years in the writing, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, maybe even approaching 20, certainly he starts to write it in the last part of his life after he has been exiled from Florence. So the Italian peninsula consisted of city-states in the 13th and 14th century. Dante's born in around the 1260s and then dies in 1321. And it's at war, a kind of bloody civil war. And Florence itself is in a kind of decline, although its power and wealth is increasing across the course of Dante's life. Um, mercantilism is being born, aided by new forms of banking. And so lending, Florence issues the florin, a coin that enables and supports this mercantilism. So new money is coming into Florence. This creates instability, um, conflicts between secular and ecclesiastical rulers. This is the age of papal armies as much as private wealth. And the ups and downs of that throw Florence into civil war. Dante, to the midpoint of his life, had already become quite well known, both as a poet, he invented what's called the sweet new style, and also as a politician, he was one of the priors of Florence for period. Um, but that led to his exile, because through the political shenanigans, he found himself on the wrong side, and so couldn't return to his beloved city on pain of being burnt alive. And at that point, you know, Italy wasn't a united country. It was these many city-states with different dialects, even different languages. And so this exile was very profound for Dante. He, he did lose his wealth and actually lost touch with his family for quite some time too. Um, but it precipitates this huge crisis in his life. And through the period of many years, wandering from one city-state to the next, finding some refuge in other courts. I mean, he had kind of some transferable skills at least. Um, but nonetheless, the Divine Comedy is born out of this breakdown, um, which I feel is really important to remember that that's typically even, I think, the way that it is. Um, the, the greatest visionary expressions of human possibility and divine connection come out of turbulent times. And that's certainly the case for Dante. Yeah. And something I didn't know until uh, listening to um, a rebroadcast of a documentary on the CBC here, uh, you know, I think because it's 700 years since his death, uh, they've been rebroadcasting some of these uh, documentary series on the Divine Comedy. But he was actually married and had children that uh, he had to leave. Isn't that right? Yeah, he um, had his family, um, his his reputation, um, his love of 
what became the Italian language. I mean, he's hugely influential in terms of the development of modern Italian, but he had to leave that whole rich culture behind. Um, you know, and it, it, it must have been a tremendously exciting time. It's the early days of the Renaissance, um, a few decades before Dante, St. Francis of Assisi had been walking the fields and lanes, um, the mountains of Tuscany near Florence as well. And it's now thought that Francis seeded the Renaissance because Francis's piety was a love of nature, a love of the world around him, brother, son and sister moon, as he's remembered for singing. And this unleashed a huge new spirit that fostered a keen interest in the material world rather than just spiritual realities. I mean, for Francis, no doubt, the material world was the portal um, to spiritual reality, hence singing brother, sun, sister, moon. Everything spoke of the divine presence. But that led in figures like Giotto, who was a contemporary of Dante, to painting portraiture that's recognisably individuals. So this, this sense of a, a new consciousness, a new dispensation emerging at the time as well, where the individual person becomes significant. Um, it leads to not just a love of the natural world, but also to the early kinds of empiricism that would give birth to modern science as well. So Franciscans following Francis are hugely important in the emergence of modern empirical study of the world, but also the ideas that back that up. And in particular, ideas such as nominalism, that we human beings can take a stance against the world that means we can abstract ourselves from it and study it in more objective ways. And this has this very ambivalent effect that on the one hand, it leads to a whole new way of studying the world that, that gives birth to science with figures like Roger Bacon, William of Ockham, Ockham's Razor is one of the best known results of that. Ockham's Razor essentially being to slice away anything that's seen deemed unnecessary to offer an explanation. And that tends to preference the tangible in offering explanations to the world and so the empirical. Um, but it has this other effect that human beings are increasingly left isolated and alienated from the natural world. If you're not participating in it anymore, then where are you in the cosmos? And eventually with figures like Galileo, this reaches a full development of consciousness that um, is our natural assumption now. But it all follows a kind of unexpected consequence, really, of Francis of Assisi um, a few decades before Dante. But the deeper implications of the spiritual revival are starting to be felt by Dante. And I think that in his exile, he realizes the breakdown of the medieval world taking place around him felt in his own breakdown and so yearns to give expression to a possibility for himself but also for future generations and the divine comedy is the richest expression of that mm. Mm. yeah that's really helpful just um 
to understand a little better of uh, what was going on then in terms of uh, people's relationship to the world. And um, okay, so we mentioned his exile and the kind of profound isolation or alienation that he must have felt at that time. And the the comedy starts out with this proclamation of a kind of um, confession of a midlife crisis. Like he's right in the middle of his life, 35 years old, and uh, finds himself wandering in a dark wood. Um, I think, you know, that when I read that and understood what happened to him leading up to the writing of the text, I think that makes him so relatable to anybody across time to know that um, people, you know, 700 years ago could go through this period of uh, questioning uh, the path that they've been on and, you know, wondering uh, what's next. Yeah, I mean, it is the first literary midlife crisis. And he writes in Italian to um, the vernacular that could be read or understood when read out by anybody. We know that the Divine Comedy was a huge success right from the word go. And he therefore is giving expression to this inner life of the new sense of being an individual. Um, you know, it wasn't just the great saints. It wasn't just the divine life that mattered, but your life too as an individual. And another really important facet of his times was a, I don't know, a kind of um, an, a, a dramatic, very dramatic upsurge in personal devotion. So Francis of Assisi is perhaps the best known, but all sorts of groups like the Beguines and others were inviting people to embark on their own quests, particularly to know God. Mm. And they fell out of the church. Some were held within the church, like the Franciscans eventually. The Dominicans would be another very famous group born around this time. And so Dante, in a way, is very much of his time um, in questioning his life at the age of around 35. Um, he, his, the opening line famously is midway through the course of our life, not just midway through the course of my life. Mm. He signals right from the word go that this is going to be part of what it is to be a spiritual creature henceforth for all people. You know, Dante is not a priest, he's not a monk, and this is for all people. I think that's part of the resonance for us now as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important point that he decided to write this in Italian um, because the norm would have been to write a text like this in, in Latin, which was read only by the kind of upper echelons of society, right? Yeah, and also it shows that the language which you speak every day is rich enough, subtle enough, nuanced to laugh, evocative enough to awaken this spiritual sensibility too. Um, you know, he writes in the sweet new style, um, which itself is part of um, conjuring up the sense of the individual's love and yearning for the divine can inspire power, this journey. And so, the very fact of writing in Italian at one level is about making it much more accessible, but at another deeper level is about 
forging a new kind of spirituality that's not reliant on these exclusive languages like Latin that belong to the spiritual and theological adepts, but it's saying, no, this spirit is alive in you in the very words you speak. And by using your own language, you can help yourself on this journey, which is yours, everybody. Hmm. Oh, it just, uh, <laughs> I started to feel this like real affection for Dante, you know, kind of hearing this. Um, yeah. Um, you're really bringing him to life for me. And I really appreciate that. Uh, now, one of the ways that you frame uh, the three books of the comedy, which I guess came out almost like a serial and people would, uh, would buy them as they came out and memorize them and read them in taverns and things like that. Like it was quite a, bestseller like maybe like uh i don't know a harry potter people waiting for the next edition to come out uh which is fascinating yeah no, that, he um certainly worked you know worked on it over this this period of time from i think people reckon he must have started it in about 1307 1308 perhaps then he dies in 1321 and finished it just a few months before he died so yeah over you know many years the word would have gone out, this incredible work was appearing and people wanted more and more. There's a very nice story, which I think is probably true because it was recorded in the first biography of Dante just a few years after his death that was written by Boccaccio. And there the story is told that the last cantos of the Par Paradiso weren't known of when Dante died. And so this work, seemed to be unfinished. But Dante then appeared in a dream to one of his sons who had already taken up the mantle of celebrating their father and told the son that the remaining cantos were in a niche that was hidden behind a stove um, that no one knew about, no one knew it existed. And sure enough, um, the son has a look, there's the niche, and there are the final cantos of the Paradiso. And I mean, I, I buy the story um, partly because it does make sense for Dante to have been anxious about the final cantos appearing in his own lifetime, because there, I think, are where his, the full expression of his revolutionary Christianity um, is, is, is given voice. Um, there's intimations right from the beginning that this is not just about a faithful Christian telling a conventional Christian story. This is an unfolding that ultimately, if you follow it all the way through, which is to say, if you let it convert you as much as Dante was converted by it, it leads to a whole new sense of Christian possibility. A key facet of which, for example, is that all people will be saved that Christianity is a universal religion. Um, it is only the expression that Dante knew the best of God's actions in all times and places. And, you know, that would have been heretical. Um, I mean, it's sort of heretical now even, but um, <laughs> nonetheless, it was certainly heretical then and could have got him into severe trouble. And so in the last parts of the Paradiso where various saints and souls and angels communicate this to him and these include figures like saint peter you know the the original pope um who give dante their blessing 
and Dante is claiming great authority for the revelation by then. So wanting to keep it hidden until after he died doesn't make some sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Like if his feud with the Pope wasn't enough to get him burned at the stake, then this uh, revelatory text would certainly uh, do the job. Yeah, um, that's fascinating. Even if that story is not literally true, I just uh, I want to believe it because it's such a great story itself. Um, now, I wonder, uh, OK, so how would you think of for I mean, in the title of the subtitle of your book, it's uh, you talk about the whole comedy as being a, uh, a kind of a map of transformation. So is that the best way for us to understand it as a kind of uh, a journey of initiation from uh, one uh, kind of mode of consciousness to a more enlightened mode of consciousness? I think initiation is a really good word because what he's saying is that this journey through the Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso, is not like a kind of grand tour of the world where you as an isolated individual just step into these different worlds, get a bit of a taste of them and then move on. He's saying you can only enter these domains by participating in their life. And so as he descends into the inferno, into hell, he's, his hellish side comes out more and more. And I think that he encounters the individuals who he knew either in life or through history and mythology that would mirror back to him more and more intensely the depths of hellish states of mind. And then when he has encountered the darkest aspects of, in a way, the human psyche, but also, to use Barfield's expression, the darkest aspects of the inside of the whole of the cosmos, particularly with the sight of Lucifer in the Christian mythology, um, then he can begin the turnaround and the ascent. And similarly, up through Mount Purgatory, he encounters figures that he knew or mythological figures that reflect the possibility of his transformation to him more and more. And then in Paradise, something similar happens where it's not really till the paradise that he's actually able to start to encounter reality as it truly is as an enlightened person. So this is very much like an initiation where you enter the darkness, feel the fear, encounter these dark realities and know them in yourself as much as in the world around, perceiving them in the richest possible sense. And that's necessary for a proper conversion. Um, this isn't just a download about a few facts of existence. Um, this is about sharing in life in all its fullness. Because, of course, then you can share in the delights and the knowledge and the awareness of the divine being, which is also to say that ultimately the divine comedy is a story of theosis, of divinization, to use the orthodox words. Um, Dante discovers the divine within him, which was there all along, but had got occluded. And he realizes that there's only one life, and that's the divine life, and his life participates and springs from that one life. But to really know that through and through, you have to encounter the myriad ways in which life comes at you and in which you think you know it in its limited forms and pushed through 
those tight, trapped, inhibited forms of life to see and know in the deepest parts of yourself the fullness of life. Mm. Yeah, and like any kind of classic tale of initiation, uh, one of the first things that happens is he meets uh, a guide or mentor to help him on his journey. And what's the significance of Virgil as Dante's guide through the three um, cantos? Yeah, well, I mean, just that um, he, Virgil's the guide through the Inferno and the Purgatorio, and then he meets Beatrice, who guides him through the Paradiso. Um, I think that hmm. he meets Virgil for the first two major stages because he has to go through the darkness. And it's a bit like if he'd met Beatrice at the start, it's a bit like falling in love. You know, when you first fall in love, you think that you've got the one-way ticket to paradise and you'll never have to face a tricky moment again. But probably as the relationship unfolds and as aspects of yourself and your partner start to show up that had got lost in the first thrill and light of love, um, you, know, you realise that that's not so. So I think Virgil is the right guide for Dante at the start because Virgil can meet Dante where Dante's at. Um, you know, Virgil, uh, the great Roman poet who had already been a great inspiration to Dante. Um, Virgil too, it turns out, is on a journey of transformation as well. And that's always really valuable for guides, certainly in the, in the hellish and the purgatorial states. I think it gets a bit different in the paradisal states. But you want a guide for much of your life who is transforming too because that dynamism is what transmits as much as you know we're going to turn left here or i'm not sure what's happening next or trying to discern what's going on um so virgil is the person that actually beatrice sends to dante when he wakes up in the dark wood midway through the course of our life um and What's so interesting is that Virgil does tell Dante right at the start that Beatrice has sent him and that in a way he can be assured that this journey is a bit like journeying through a labyrinth. There's going to be all sorts of turns and twists and moves away from the centre, but there's actually ultimately no wrong turnings. Um, but he can't just immediately, as it were, take Beatrice by the hand and, and return to the divine. That would be to leave a whole part of himself behind and he must encounter that dark side to know that it's all part of the divine life and hence Virgil says okay we've got to take our steps now through the gates of hell even though I've told you this is receive the blessing of Beatrice and Saint Lucy and the Virgin Mary a kind of cascade of female saints who have seen Dante's plight from the high heavens Hmm. And um, for people listening who aren't so familiar with the story, Beatrice was Dante's kind of first ideal love object, right? Like a, his first love, I think, when he was nine years old. Yeah, the story goes that he caught sight of her and in that youthful infatuation, love awoke within him and he became obsessed with her 
she was influential on him forming this sweet new style. It, at one point in the Purgatorio, other poets asked Dante, how did you develop the sweet new style? And he said, I just paid attention to what love was doing to me. Um, <laughs> again, quite a revolutionary idea at the time. Um, but yeah, and but Beatrice dies quite young in life. Um, this, Dante says they only met on a handful of occasions, um, but nonetheless, her presence stayed within him in the way that infatuation can. And although she chastises him terribly when they finally meet um, on the threshold of paradise um, for being too wedded to the infatuation and not being able to follow the love through to what it was really speaking of. And nonetheless, this was a moment of awakening, infantile awakening, you might say, but still necessary awakening. And Beatrice is the seminal figure in that. Mm -hmm. And um, am I right in uh, remembering that Virgil was um, a pre-Christian figure? Like, so he was considered a, a pagan? Yeah, he's an interesting figure because he was um, a pagan poet. Um, particularly, he writes the Aeneid, which um, the Roman Republic, sorry, the Roman Empire after the time of Augustine um, feels is its kind of foundational myth told in wonderful Latin poetry. So Virgil's very seminal like that. And um, he does write verses that Christianity subsequently took to be prophesying the birth of Jesus. He writes lines about a new world appearing with a sun from heaven descending. And so Christians felt that this was a prophecy of Christianity. He also made a journey to the underworld in um, the figure of Aeneas, in Aeneas's journey back from the Trojan War that's described in the Aeneid. And so had engaged with the underworld um, as well. So he, he's a kind of rich figure for Dante to lean on as he's trying to understand the meaning of this journey. Now, does the nature of Virgil being a pagan, does that have something to do with the transformation you talked about that occurs within him, even as the mentor or guide figure? I think so. I mean, this is hugely debated by Dante scholars. Um, Virgil himself is in limbo, he tells us. And limbo is a place right on the edges of the inferno, which um, is a peaceful, tranquil place, actually, that has some light. And there are other great pre-Christian poets and thinkers and poets and thinkers from other faiths as well. And whilst Virgil says that he will be returning to limbo, it seems to me that that is him being humble about his state. Um, because the truth is that Virgil doesn't just journey through the inferno, which incidentally he tells us that he had done once before. He had been asked by a necromancer to journey to pull a soul out of the deep depths of hell and had done that once before, which is another one of these interesting details. The Divine Comedy 
constantly throws up these wonderful facets that you wonder about the meaning of. But then Virgil accompanies Dante right to the top of Mount Purgatory. And you can only enter Mount Purgatory if you know within yourself the transformation of divine salvation. And so this must be active and alive in Virgil. And so although when Dante and Virgil finally depart, it's a sudden tearing away from Dante's side. Um, so as Dante experiences, at least, Virgil suddenly isn't there anymore. I think that this is Virgil realizing that he not only had given all he could offer to Dante, but that he had so now awoken within himself the possibility of change that he needed to become fully concerned with that development in him. And so I think he doesn't actually just go back to limbo in a rather mechanical way, um, but continues his own salvific transformation. We know that things are never quite what they seem right from the word go as well. So, for example, in limbo, Dante's first readers would have expected to see unbaptized children because the official doctrine of the church was that if you die before you were baptized, you weren't condemned, but you went to limbo in a kind of eternal antechamber. It was pleasant enough, but didn't enjoy the full divine blessing. But Dante doesn't see the unbaptized children in limbo and perhaps sees ultimately the unbaptized children in the heights of paradise, in the Empyrean itself. And so he's constantly playing this dynamic out where things aren't as you quite expected them, but they're close enough for you, particularly Dante's early readers, um, to feel you're there. They're not so strange right from the word go that you don't even feel you can really know what it might be like to be there. But there's this constant unfolding of the truth of reality that you're only finally able to see in in the last cantos of the Paradiso. And then all these strange anomalies and shifts and moves and open questions and so on, I think finally fall into place. Mm. Fascinating. So he was kind of offering a renewed vision of the familiar territory of Christians at the time. Yeah, I mean, this is why um, I think that ultimately it is a, a story of universal salvation. Um, that, and how could it be otherwise? You know, Dante realizes that all life, every being from all times and places are expressions of the divine being across myriad times and places. And so how could it not be that everything returns to God because it's always already in God? But you've got to take seriously the darkness of life as well. And so his way of doing it is to enter the darkness and by entering it, see how it can return to the light. Um, and that's why, although it's a universal story, it has the first section of the Inferno. Um, the, the literal reading doesn't understand that, of course, um, but Dante is signaling right from the beginning of things that this is not a literal reading. It, it, it's what's sometimes known. Well, Dante actually explains this in himself in, in a letter that survives. He says that the key dynamic alive in the Divine Comedy is what was called the tropological. And tropological 
um, comes from the Greek for turning point, you know, the Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, the kind of points where the sun seems to turn in the sky. And so he's constantly working for that turning within you so that then, as he goes on to explain, you can know the anagogic, you can know the cosmos from the divine point of view. And that is the whole motivation of the divine comedy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. Yeah, um, when we frame it as a, a tale of initiation, it makes sense that it comes in three parts, which we can think of as a descent, a transformation, and a return uh, you know, coming back with a boon or coming back changed in some way, uh, enlightened. Um, and I wonder, could you maybe take us through, give us a brief overview of each of the three different stages and maybe a few key scenes or, or figures that he encounters at those stages? Yeah. I mean, you can describe it in many ways, which you might expect because it is a total transformation. Um, but one way that I find helpful, and this is how it first started to connect with me, actually, was I realized that the experience of time is very different in each of the three zones. And in the inferno, there's no present. Um, there's people that are either lost in the past or terrified of the future. And then in the purgatorio, the present starts to show up and that means that change becomes possible because it's only when you have a sense of the possibility of now that it's its own thing that's not either totally shaped by the past or totally full of fear of the future that you can change and then in the paradiso there's this sense of the eternal now and so all times and places can be traversed and known at the same time um but he, he, he gets this from encounters, as you say. I mean, that's one of the brilliant things about the divine comedy, that this is all explained through encounter, um, which, again, is a huge part of the initiation power of it. Um, a particular moment that I find very illuminating is that he encounters fairly early on in the Inferno a figure called um, Caccio, and he's in the terrace of... Well, it's sometimes called the Terrace of the Gluttonous, um, but this is just the kind of Inferno 101. Um, you, you immediately realise that there's something much more profound going on in these terraces than just the kind of tagline. Um, but anyway, the, the significant thing about Caccio is that Caccio sees Dante come by 
and they have a kind of encounter that's mostly to do with the past. Caccio teases, mocks, taunts Dante about the state of Florence, and so puts the fear of God into Dante in that. But there's just a moment at the end of their dialogue where Caccio, Dante says, squinted. And I think this is a really important moment because it's almost as if Caccio could just briefly get a sense that it wasn't just the past that was in front of him in the figure of Dante, but that something new was in front of him. This is a living soul in hell that has never really been seen before. And just in an instant with this squint, he gets the faintest glimpse that there might be a moment of now as well as this preoccupation with the past, but he doesn't know what to make of it. He can't make anything of it. And so in that moment, he just falls back down into the mud. Um, Mm. So that, I think, is one of the ways in which Dante signals this experience of time and how it traps people. And this made huge sense to me in psychotherapy because people's anxieties or people's sense of the meaningless of life, meaninglessness of life, often comes from something that happened in the past that has, at one level of their being at least, come to colour or shape their experience of life. And it's only when you realise that something belongs to the past that the present starts to become more more malleable, more alive to you. And then that's the beginning of change. Um, And so this is a way of describing a lot of what happens in the purgatory. Um, And this partly shows up in the purgatory when people care for each other. Um, This is something that becomes an increasing feature of the journey up the terraces on Mount Purgatory. Um, And the point about being able to care for someone else other than yourself is that you realise they're there and that maybe they've got troubles that are akin to your own and so you can show kindness and empathy. Um, But you need to be in the present moment to realise there are others there, as opposed to just seeing everybody as just reflections of your own discontent. Um, So that's another way in which it starts to show up in Mount Purgatory. People care for each other. Um, And then in the paradise, the eternal shows up. partly because it becomes very clear to Dante that the souls appear to him at the different levels of paradise and they move through levels of heaven quite as much as they've moved up terraces in the purgatory and then down the circles in the inferno. But unlike the circles of hell where people are trapped and unlike the terraces of purgatory where people must spend a certain amount of time to complete their transformation, In paradise, he realizes that the souls are able to traverse the whole of the heavens. And so although at first, like a figure called Picarda Donati, who's very significant to Dante, she appears to him in the first heaven, the heaven of the moon. Um, And Dante at first is a bit disconcerted by this. He says, how come you're in the heaven of the moon? I would have thought you would have been close to God, not in this low heaven. And she shows him that she can traverse many different levels of heaven, and she's appeared early in Dante's journey, in part in order to meet Dante with the familiar face and encourage him, awaken in him um, the extent of this new part of the journey. Um, And as she completes what she has to tell Dante, Dante sees her disappearing back into the the full light of the divine, the Imperium. Um, And so 
she can traverse the whole of space and time because she knows the fullness of eternity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the, I mean, the encounter with Lucifer in the Inferno is uh, really amazing. I mean, this image of Lucifer as a really kind of fallen, beastly creature uh, with his wings like barely flapping, um, you know, you describe him as over like a thousand feet tall. So this huge, hairy beast with these wings that are just uh, like a dying uh, moth or something, just kind of moving on their own. I mean, is that a unique vision of Lucifer that comes from Dante? Or is this something that people would have been familiar with? I think it is Dante's unique perception. It, it makes sense in a much broader tradition because he broadly follows a Neoplatonic perception of how darkness increases the further you are from God. So Lucifer is at the point of existence that's just not falling out of existence altogether, which of course is also to say that Lucifer, even at that extreme point, must still be within the divine life. And that is signaled in the movement of these wings. But there is this sense, you're right, that um, is it a movement of life or is it a movement of the last gasps of life? And at that point, Dante presumes that this is life on the cusp of falling out of existence altogether. Um, And so, yeah, um, Lucifer reminds him of a great windmill Um, And I think this is really significant because although windmills had been around for many centuries, um, with this new period beginning to unfold, mercantilism and so on, um, windmills were starting to appear quite a lot across the Italian landscape. And I think they must have really freaked people out at first because what they were doing was extracting mechanical energy from the wind which to the mentality of the times would have still been not just the wind of the weather, but also the divine spirit moving across Mm -hmm. the land and the face of the earth as well. And so to have a windmill that just seemed to take brute force out of the air would have been quite devilish. And so it's a natural way for Dante to describe the size of Lucifer as well, but it still is an energy of sorts. Hmm. Yeah, oh, that's so fascinating, the um, the windmill image. Yeah, it must have been a time like the dawn of the machine age, but uh, the way people would have perceived that would have been something like Don Quixote uh, having this vision of the windmills as great giants or... Um, yeah, there's something about like stealing of the, the spirit and uh, using that uh, for this kind of like mundane... Uh, machinations or something that's something very really powerful about that yeah and um, this is this is probably why dante is a prophet of his times and ours because it wasn't like machines hadn't existed before windmills have been around a long time but the consciousness to turn this into ultimately an industrial um complex that could um you know around which a whole society would become orientated the extraction of energy from the material environment that is a whole new thing no one had thought that imagined that before 
Um, and so that's what Dante begins to see unfolding in his time. Hmm. And equating that with uh, Lucifer. I mean, there's another um, idea that Rudolf Steiner had equating kind of technology to the Luciferian. So another kind of strange parallel there. Um, yeah, I'm sure Steiner knew of the Divine Comedy. And so his two sort of powerful angelic presences that govern our times are Lucifer, who woos us into a promised future, and then Araman, who drags us into a feared past. Um, and yeah, you can. that's a good sort of Steiner move that... Steiner often takes things which are around in the traditions and just gives them that extra twist, as he does in this case. Yeah, that's a good point. And then um, if people don't already have a vision of this, um, the Inferno is like, um, I imagine it as like concentric circles that are going down and so gradually getting narrower and narrower. So when we find Lucifer at the bottom, that's the furthest away from the kind of the mundane light of the sun, you could think. But that's also the entranceway to the Purgatorio, which is like a kind of mirror image of this conical descent in that it's a mountain that has terraced levels that you then climb. Um, so I think that's just, so the bottom of the Inferno is the entryway to what becomes the Ascension, which is this kind of, uh, topsy-turvy or flipping things upside down in a way. What's the significance yeah. of that? Yeah, um, well, the, the story is that when, and Dante tells this story, when Lucifer fell from heaven, along with all the other fallen angels, fell from the divine towards the earth. And when Lucifer reached the earth, the the living matter of the earth was so horrified by this falling presence, that it rushed ahead of Lucifer as Lucifer fell, and so forms the shape of the inferno, um, but also then appears on the other side of the earth in the shape of Mount Purgatory. And so Mount Purgatory is the mirror image of the inferno. Um, you know, the living world um, was horrified by what was happening and so fled even as Lucifer fell. So it's a wonderful image. Um, and we learn too, according to Dante, why Lucifer fell, um, which was part of um, the, the sort of the deep heresy, um, because what Lucifer did that was a mistake was want the divine knowledge too quickly before he was ready for it. And this is... Um, a kind of retelling of um, the great journey of Christianity from the Edenic state through the fall to the return. Um, that this is putting it slightly in my way now, but I think what this is saying is that we are destined for the divine, but God doesn't want just spiritual robots. God wants kind of co-equal participants in the divine life and so that for us created beings requires a kind of process a fulfillment you might say of our being and that adam and eve and also lucifer in the heavens they too quickly rushed towards the divine after their creation and so now have to go on this great journey which we experience in time in order to know the fullness of eternity um, and so I think speaks not just about Adam's 
return to the divine, which Dante actually sees, and but also ultimately Lucifer's too, for all the darkness that accrues around him. And that's anticipated, at least, to come back to your point, in the fact that Dante and Virgil find a way out of the inferno by crawling onto the very body of Lucifer. It's not like they see Lucifer and then Virgil goes, okay, look, we'll turn around and walk back now. No, you can only go forward on the spiritual journey for all that it seems like a terrible mistake crawling onto the body of Lucifer in this case. Um, And so, you know, the divine will is always working its way out for our good is one of the central messages of, of that point in the journey. Hmm. Yeah, there's also something there about being really close to, like, you could think of it as God's shadow or being really close to the darkness in order to really be transformed and to be truly enlightened. Like, we have to uh, climb up on its back. And, like, I mean, just the the way the image is painted uh, with the fur and everything, I mean, what a visceral uh kind of embodied experience that is uh, it's amazing. Yeah, no, it's very brilliant. And the whole floor of hell is frozen solid. It's uh, an icy lake um, where the souls have, again, nearly lost everything that kept them alive. And so the sense of an absolute zero that mm. they're approaching. Um, it's, it's a very, I think it's a much truer, expression of the infernal state than the kind of blazing fires of say Milton's Satan who would rather rule in hell than be ruled in heaven um there's no ruling of yourself going on in in Dante's inferno it's precisely the opposite your freedom has almost completely disappeared at that point Mm. and then comes the long slow climb to ultimate freedom through the terraces of uh Purgatorio. Um, maybe uh, I'm just noticing the time, and uh, I mean this is huge. You've uh, you've written a whole book guiding us through every every um, section of the poem. You've released a bunch of podcast episodes that I've been working my way through. Each one is a half an hour on each of these um, sections. Uh, so it's obviously really dense with imagery and meaning. Um, so I want to be respectful of that. But I'm really intrigued by the mirroring. So the encounter with Lucifer and then at the end in the Paradiso, the encounter with uh, God is remarkable. I mean, what a visionary account uh, that I've never read anything quite like it, actually. It's amazing. Could you talk a little bit about that and um, maybe paint a picture of that for the listeners? Yeah, well, just in parenthesis, um, it sounds like maybe your dog needs to um, oh, can you hear take him? a break as well, actually. <laughs> but I'm happy to carry on talking as long as you are and the dog is too. Let, um, okay, but, let me uh, let me take care of him actually, because he'll he's uh he's senior and he's a bit um he's got dementia and so he gets kind of stuck in these loops and so I'll I'll go take care of him. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so um, if we could just, uh, let's pick it up at that um, kind of final scene, which uh, is just remarkable. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount that could be said about this. And actually, Brian, if you wanted to talk more richly about this final stage on a future occasion, I'm very happy to do that. And partly because I'm one of the things which I really wanted to ensure in my book was that as much was said about the Paradiso as is said about the Inferno, because it feels to me one of the tragedies of our times is that people are often interested in the Inferno, but not that much in the Purgatorio, and, and then they don't even begin to engage with the Paradiso. Whereas for Dante, that's when the life really starts, in fact. Yeah, um, no, that, that's such a good point. I mean, for, I think for the longest time, I always just thought of it as Dante's Inferno. And then to find out, no, it's actually a divine comedy or comedia. And it's got these three parts to it that you'd never hear a lot about. But I think it was when I first saw the Hieronymus Bosch um, triptych, uh, which is, I think, maybe based on Dante's. But it's anyway. But then realize, oh, there's actually three parts to it. And yeah, there has been a lot of attention paid to the inferno part. Because I think the the imagery is so kind of rich and it's like this amazing kind of fantasy uh, horror novel almost, you know? But anyway, yeah, I hear you. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, maybe just one way of describing what happens to Dante in the Paradiso is with, a again, one of these kind of interesting details that you can wrestle with for quite a long time wondering what on earth to make of it. But Dante says that in the first part of the Paradiso, so this is when they rise through the heavens of the moon and then Mercury, Venus, the sun, uh, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, into the, the heaven of the fixed stars and then to the premium mobile, which is the kind of interface between the created order and the uncreated order. In all that journey, not quite from the get-go, but certainly from the sphere of Mercury, he can't see the faces of all the souls that he encounters. He knows their presence, he hears their voices, he sees their light, but can't see their faces. And on a couple of occasions, he asks, you know, why can't I see your face? And they say it will be disclosed to you at the proper moment. And I think what this is about is that Dante must, you might say, be able to see his own face first. And that's to say, to understand that his face is the divine face, that when we encounter other human faces, we're encountering the image of God. Um, I mean, the Sufis put it rather well when they say everything is the face of God. And of course, Dante was deeply influenced by Islamic mysticism too at the time. Mm. And this only comes fully clear for Dante when he is able to himself sing the full richness of divine life, which account which occurs in the Prima Mobile when he sings particularly of, of faith, hope, and love. Um, and then he encounters Adam, the Aboriginal human, and so sees the fullness of humanity face to face and is able then to understand who he is. And I think that's so important because it's when we understand who we are as human beings that we understand the nature of the divine presence within us. And then Dante can enter the Empyrean, which is the uncreated order, um, the, 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 the regions beyond space and time, the regions that hold space and time. And he starts to see what at first seems like a series of reversals or twists and turns to him. So he notices that um, instead of the souls coming down, to greet him, they're now rising 
and taking him towards the center of all things. He, he realizes that the center of all things is also the circumference of all things, that this, what appear, appears to him first of all is an infinitesimal point of light from which pours everything. He also starts to see that from that pouring is contained everything in the same point of light. And so you get these um, instantaneous shifts, which are also simultaneous expressions of different dimensions of reality. And it's like reality that had been tightly folded up um, to his earlier perceptive capacities now starts to unfold and be seen in all its richness. And he describes this in many ways. What One of the ways is towards the end, he sees, first of all, a flowing river of light with souls dancing and skating across its surface. And then this straight flow, which in a way is the last echo of linear time, turns into a beautiful circle which of course is an image of completion. And then that circle itself shapeshifts again and becomes what looks like an amphitheater. And I think the reason why it looks a bit like an amphitheater for Dante is because an amphitheater in a way is a microcosm within which is seen the macrocosm that it represents. Um, you, you, you might see a play or something in an amphitheater, which is a kind of a snapshot of life. But Dante realizes that in this macrocosm, he's seeing the microcosm now. And then it becomes the white rose, which is one of the best known images from the Paradiso. And I think the point about a white rose is that um, it's at once regular, but also is dynamic and organic. If you actually, I, I went and looked at white roses quite a lot when I was writing about this part of it. And this is what occurred to me, that a rose is, has a kind of symmetry, but that's also completely free-flowing. Um, and the white rose has distinctiveness. It's got particular petals, but also you can see how it flows into a oneness as well. Um, and of course, whiteness is at once life and light admitted, but also draws you into it. And so you feel depth in 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 something that's white. Um, and so Dante uses this image to show us how reality unfolded once more. And the other thing that I love about the Divine Comedy is that um, life becomes richer and richer and more and more full of movement and the individual souls become more and more and more themselves and it's as that vitality intensifies that the divinity becomes more and more manifest as well um you know often in, in spiritual traditions it's talked as if somehow our life must be let go of in order that the divine life might be known um, and in one moment there's a kind of truth in that because um, we're often confused and ignorant about the nature of, of life. And so in a way, it feels like that ignorance, that appreciation of life has to be let go of. But Dante is very clear that if that's true in one moment, it's only so that the true dynamic of life can be known both within ourselves and then as we know it within ourselves, so we know it more and more in the world and in the cosmos and then the Imperium around us as well. And so this grows and magnifies, and Dante says, I'm starting to run out of words and images to describe this, which of course must also happen because words and images are only portals, are only 
stepping stones along the way. But the last image that he gives us before he falls into um, the silence, that's the fullness of the divine realization, is that he knows himself to be spinning like a perfect wheel with the love that turns the sun and the other stars. And so he knows that his being is at once with the being that fills all things because it's at one with the being and beyond being from which, you know, our vitality springs. Um, so this is tremendous sort of uh, interlocking uh, and then increasingly multidimensional, multifaceted um, initiation that he gives us um, so that we can just feel something of that stirring in our own uh, being as well. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> it's it's completely psychedelic, the, the vision of God at the end. I mean, anybody who's uh, experimented with psychedelics will recognize some of the imagery, perhaps. Um, now, the thing that really struck me about the Paradiso uh, and surprised me was this ascension through the seven planets. Now, this is a really old Gnostic idea. And in the 1300s, I mean, would this have been um, common to still work with this uh, cosmology or practice of going through the planets? Or would this be a, a, a renewal of some older idea at the time? No, it's it's the standard Potomac universe um, before Galileo and Copernicus and all that. Um, and so it's an understanding of the cosmos that is at once experienced as much as mapped. And so people experienced the moon as closest to the earth because the moon changes in its light, much as the earth changes in light as well. And then they knew that um, that Mercury and Venus two must be closest to the earth um, because they move most quickly in the sky. Um, and so it's a different kind of movement, not the changing of their light, but the movement across the celestial background. Um, and so that lends, leads them to feel that um, not just in the cosmological schema as we would think of it now, but in terms of their participation in the divine light, the divine source, that Mercury and Venus must be closer to us because we move and they move. Um, and then the sun is a kind of um, pivotal place in this cosmology because um, it's the brightest light in the sky, um, at least as we experience it. Um, and um, so if you like, well, one of the, the people that Dante meets in the sphere of the sun are the great theologians and philosophers and saints, uh, spiritual adepts who've been able to articulate with words that we can most clearly understand divine truths. And so that is akin to the divine light of the sun that um, that illuminates life on earth most, most clearly. Um, but Dante learns that he must learn to follow what at first seemed like subtler lights. And so this takes him into the light of Mars and then Jupiter and then Saturn. Um, and actually, if you can attune yourself to what are first seen like those subtler lights, you realize that they're actually communicating truths about divine life that are kind of hidden by the brilliance of the sun, um, but are necessary to absorb and participate in in order to take you to the source, which is the source of the, of the, of the light of the sun as well. So the Potomac universe is this complex of not just empirical measurement 
or deduction, perhaps, um, you know, which, of course, the ancient world could do. And they had mathematics and they could deduce, um, you know, details which we know now about, say, the diameter of the Earth and so on. And, um, and people knew that the moon reflects the light of the sun and so on. Um, but they also didn't separate that from the spiritual appreciation of the cosmos, uh, where this light also is a guide back to the divine light as well. And so this schema emerges um, that the Gnostics used as well um, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks for kind of distinguishing that cosmology, which is all due to um, us uh, regarding the cosmos from the perspective of the earth and all of that. Um, but I meant actually like the practice, like the old Gnostic practice of uh, ascending through the different planets and doing this kind of planetary remediation to purify the soul, to become a, a well, a pure enlightened soul closest to God or, you know, um, uh, dissolving back into the oneness or however you want to think about it. But that actual practice uh, would that have, I mean, this is what he kind of takes you on, this this journey, which harkens back to this old Gnostic practice, which was probably heretical. So, I mean, wasn't that... I mean, maybe, that, maybe, maybe just leap in there. So, yeah. Did you want to just add a further thought? Yeah, no, I'm just kind of like trying to understand like uh, how this appears in uh, in Dante's poem um, when it seemed like it was a much older practice that was... Uh, deemed heretical by the conventional church or something i'm just trying to get clear on that i mean this 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 area of gnosticism it's only actually now that it's been better understood actually how i think previous christian centuries related to the early gnosticism um because this kind of ascent through heavenly realms is actually in the new testament st paul says you know i've ascended into the seventh heaven um, whether in the body or not, I don't know. Um, and so a bit like Dante, you know, he realizes that it's a, um, a dramatically different experience of reality, but talks about ascent into the heavens through various heavenly levels. Um, and I think that the early Christian church um, was what we might call quite Gnostic um, in that it appreciated this kind of spiritual purification. Um, but the difference, I think, between the mainstream Christian Gnosticism and that which became heretical was that the heretical Gnostics felt that um, the lower heavens, and particularly Earth, couldn't be redeemed, that they were lost, and that no divine presence was going to come and rescue it. And so the heretical Gnostics. Um, sort of escape from the earth rather than the redemption of the whole of creation. And that's what made the difference. Um, so Dante is in the mainstream with his Gnosticism. Um, I think he's also, though, um, influenced heavily by, again, Islamic traditions, um, where there's the account of the Prophet Muhammad on his night journey going through domains of, well, hell as well, actually, as of heaven. And so this fires... Um, the imaginative engagement with these different regions of reality. And so that feeds into these cleansing practices too from uh, the Islamic tradition as much as from the Christian tradition. And so Dante um, sort of definitely takes it to a new level and purgatory, the experience of um, that region of reality is a distinctively Christian thing. 
Mm. Um, although, you know, cleansing appears in other ways in different traditions, of course. Yeah, thanks. I think you're able to kind of pick out what I was reaching for there and trying to understand. So this is why you're such a good guide is because you've got such a, a broad scope of scholarship that you can uh, help us like get things in proper context and understanding. Uh, well, I, I, I didn't know how we would do in, you know, around an hour trying to uh, get like a, a short guide to uh, to the Divine Comedy, but I think we did a pretty good job actually. And um, I feel like quite inspired to to stick with the original text, but also all the supporting texts like your own and some of the ones, the translations and commentaries that you recommend too. Um, it just seems so rich for me. It, like the imagery itself uh, seems transformational. If you really kind of imbibe them and um, and stay with the images, like James Hillman would direct us to, like stick with the image. Um, they are such powerful images that uh, will seem like that they'll just continue to work on you throughout the rest of your life. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it, it, as I said, when we began talking, it, it did change my life. Um, it, it became a guide for me. Um, that's what happens to Dante. That's what you feel happens to you, but always triangulate it with um, the shared aspects of our journey. Um, because ultimately we are all part of the one journey, even though we make our many different journeys. And um, so it, it precisely works like that. Um, this is why it's such a genius book. And, you know, it's, it's worth finding a way into it because it will it can be such a brilliant guide. Hmm. Well, thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate it. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, now it seems like uh, who's coming next maybe is uh, William Blake, who you include a number of his um, paintings of uh, the Divine Comedy in your book. And so it's like hinting at maybe what's coming next. And I know, I think you're working on a course or a book about Blake. Is that right? Certainly doing lots of talks, which can be found on my YouTube channel. Um, but that's partly just to see whether I can develop the voice to talk about Blake that then could become a book. Um, you know, Blake is another difficult writer, but difficult because as he says, I'm giving you the end of a golden string, only wind it into a ball. It will lead you in at heaven's gate, built in Jerusalem's wall. He too wants us to know about our divine origin and destiny. And you can only know about that, like Dante, if you are on the journey. And so I think his poetry is an, a very, in a very different way, but nonetheless is a similar effort to, to give us the end of this golden string um, and lead us on our way. Um, so um, I'm, I'm working hard at Blake to feel the point of contact within myself that he writes about um, so powerfully. Um, and when I feel I've kind of got there, if I get there, I'll, I'll then try and write about things as well. Um, but at the moment, yeah, doing a number of talks, which are as much about me seeing how far I can follow Blake as anything else. Mm. Yeah. You know, it strikes me that um, I think that's how a, a traditional scholar would develop their work that might lead to a book uh, is through teaching. Um, did you always want to be a teacher? Because it seems to be like that's what you've become in a way, even though your classroom might be uh, YouTube, 
predominantly, right? But you still seem to be working in this in this uh, kind of classic mode of the scholar teacher. Um, is that something you always wanted to do, or did it just kind of happen? Um, no, it's emerged, I guess. I mean, um, I, I, you know, I, as we've talked about before, I used to be a priest in the Church of England, and that was a very um, mixed experience for me, which is ultimately why I left. But um, I did discover there that I liked preaching, giving talks and teaching and so on. And then I got into journalism when I left, and that is another kind of communication. I wrote features rather than news stories. Um, and so, yeah, it's something which um, I've sort of discovered um, over time. And as I settled into realizing that what I really wanted to talk about was these spiritual journeys um, have ended up doing the work I've done. Hmm. Well, you're, you're a wonderful teacher and a great guide to these figures and their works. Uh, so I really appreciate it. And I'm just, I think you're a remarkable man and you're not, you're not very old and you've lived such a full life. I am 55, so that's uh, I'm I'm more than midway through the course of my life, I expect, yeah. Yeah, well, we were just talking about your friend uh, Rupert Sheldrake turning 80 last year. And, of course, if people haven't listened to our first conversation, you've recorded a number of dialogues with Rupert Sheldrake that are fantastic and were kind of my introduction to you and your work. So Yeah, well, I mean, look, Rupert was and is a kind of guide. if only, and it's much more than this, in that the freedom of his voice encouraged me to follow my own sense of voice too. Um, And, you know, it's that transmission thing that's often the most important part. I felt that he gave something of that to me that then I could try and make my own. Instead, I've just noticed that my screen's got darker and darker. Yeah, (laughs) the light's fading. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Um, No worries. For viewers, I'm talking about ascending into the light and disappearing into the darkness. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And, well, the sun's coming up uh, midday where I am, so here we are. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I'll let you go, and, uh, yeah, maybe um, after I do some further digesting of Dante and I feel ready for the next course. Maybe I could have you back to talk a little bit about Blake, who I'm super intrigued by. Yeah. Well, look, please. I love talking and thanks for hosting it and, and so on. Cheers. Cheers for now. Bye. (laughs) Bye. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.